The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Serendipity, if you're ready for it, will really help you out. So serendipity got me Travis Martin. Serendipity got me cloth that worked. Serendipity is important. The other one is curiosity. If you're curious, and a little bit of it is you have to be persistently curious, curiosity can really take you a long way. So if you want to start a new business, Stay curious, be ready for serendipity. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 2. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If this is your first time listening, I'm sure you're in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. In case you missed last week's episode, it was a really fascinating conversation with inventor and founder of series Greenhouse Solutions, Mark Plinke. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend you check it out. This week, I get to speak to Ed Harwood. He's the chief science officer at AeroFarms. AeroFarms' mission is to grow the best plants possible for the betterment of humanity. With over 40 years of agricultural and engineering experience, Ed founded Great Veggies before transitioning to AeroFarms. And in this episode, we cover a wide range of topics. We start off with Ed sharing some new hobbies he's picked up during the pandemic, the benefits of living in Ithaca, and his affinity for poker and reading. We learn what sparked Ed's interest in biology, agriculture, and ag tech, and lessons he learned from founding Great Veggies and the path that led him to AeroFarms. We dig a bit into the operations and learn the importance of the SOPs he's put in place and obstacles he's encountered as he transitioned into the role of CSO. He covers the difference between aeroponics and hydroponics and the pros and cons to both, and advances in aeroponics technology that he's witnessed throughout his years at AeroFarms. We learn also why AeroFarms places such an importance on taste. Lastly, we learn about the work Ed's doing with schools in New York and New Jersey to combat food deserts and to improve access to food ed, touching upon the Lettuce Project initiatives. This episode is brought to you by Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series combines smart greenhouse design with customized climate control technology to build sustainable grow environments for year-round production. They work with their customers and clients every step of the way, from helping to secure funding to providing growing data. Whether you're a commercial entrepreneur, an educator, or someone looking for a rewarding hobby, visit SeriesGreenhouseSolutions.com. That's C-E-R-E-S Greenhouse Solutions 
www.greenhousegoals.com to get started on your greenhouse goals. So much to cover here. Let's get into it. So Ed Harwood, Chief Science Officer at AeroFarms, thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Hi, you're welcome. So Ed, one of the things I'm always curious about, given where we are date stamping this December 2020, a year, uh, many people will say is a year to remember. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering if you've picked up any new hobbies during all this time we've had uh, to be at home. Actually, it's interesting. I've experimented with moving to three days a week. And the idea was is that I could maybe explore some other things that would show up in retirement. But my role in the company is so exciting. I haven't been able to let go. I just, I, I, I'm supposed to work three days a week, but I find myself, I'm cutting back a little. Okay. But for the most part, I love it. So, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, so where's home for you now? Ithaca, New York. I'm not too far from Cornell. Okay. And, uh, did you grow up there? No, I actually grew up in uh, Massachusetts, went to school in Colorado and Wisconsin, and uh, then ended up here working for Cornell University for almost a decade. And of the places you've traveled to across this country, do any of them stand out or you have fond memories of places you've lived in? The best place in the whole world is Ithaca, New York. No (laughs) one will ever beat Ithaca. What is it about it? Because I think for many people that are not familiar with Ithaca, I grew up uh, in Yonkers, which is just outside New York City, and I've lived in Los Angeles. So I've always been a, a fan of big cities. I love, I actually love hustle and bustle. And a lot of people, you know, don't like crowds. I like riding subways. We were chatting briefly in the pre-chat that we, we both attended Syracuse for a little bit as well. So I'm very familiar with college towns and small towns, and I now live in Minneapolis. So for you, what is the draw to living in in some place like Ithaca? There's a number of them. First of all, Cornell is here, so there's a good academic community, which helps both with work and with, you know, I have lots of friends, poker buddies, et cetera, okay? Mm. And it's fun to share stories. And then the library at Cornell is fantastic. Man Library is one of the agricultural Sinks, I guess, is the term that they use. I don't know if it's yeah. still being used. And and then it's very cosmopolitan town. You know, at one point we were setting records in the number of restaurants we had. We're, oh, we're really? not doing that now, obviously. <laughs> no. But no. so there's all kinds of food here, food trucks too. So it's it's not quite like being in New York City. I mean, I've been there many yeah. times, but yeah. it's a small version of a very cosmopolitan place with lots of arts and just lots of things to do. I can't resist going down this rabbit hole because you mentioned poker. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I was caught up in the wave, and I think it was around 2003, the the World Series of Poker, and everyone started playing Hold'em. So, do you have a personal preference for a specific game? I came up with a game that my poker buddies and I, we really like to play. The only thing is I have to be with them because they remember how to play it and I don't. (laughs) What's the name of it? We don't have a name for it. (laughs) It's a variation on, I guess, sort of like seven card stud, but done with different rules. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a friend, a group of friends back home on, on the East Coast, and 
we would get together and we would do dealer's choice. So every time you'd go around and we, yes. there were some names of games like Badoogie and like all these weird names of poker games that I've never even heard of. And, and like, to your point, I have to be there with them because they're like, okay, we're going to play this, this game. And I'm like, okay, remind me again what the rules are because <laughs> like, I don't know what they are, but uh, those are a lot of fun, especially when you're playing them with friends. Yeah. When we first started out, one of us had a book on poker, types of poker. And so he expanded our horizons a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sort of like what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting uh, way. It, it was a big wave for a while. And I think I've, I was actually watching the World Series of, of Poker on TV and fascinated by it. What, what, I, what I think what I love about it the most is how you can continue to just get better and better at it. And I love the, the ability to play against another human being. And so I, I love that. You know, I, I don't get the same effect, you know, doing a slot machine or roulette or anything like that when yeah. I go to casinos. I have to be playing against another human being, which I love. We actually had one of our get-togethers, virtually speaking, oh, last yeah. night. We've not been able to find a way to play poker virtually. Yeah. The ones that are advertised are horrid and too difficult. Yeah. So we got to discussing, you know, what have we learned and is this good? And we yeah. reflected on before COVID, we used to spend 45 minutes, you know, just comparing notes, everything but the organ recital. We, we passed the rule, no organ recitals. Okay. But, <laughs> yeah. So it was, it's good. We continue. Yeah. I think we did something similar. We, we connected via Zoom so we could see each other's face. And then we used poker stars or one of the, they had a way to create a private room. Mm. And then we would all be able to log into the private room. It's so funny because it would seem like the one software or tool or app that's, that's a killer app that would need to be created around this time. I, I did hear a couple of people from the startup community, someone, one of these guys who had a successful exit from his company, he bought the Oculus Rift VR sets. Mm. And apparently he sent them to 10 of his friends and, and they're all, so they all have this VR set on and they're playing poker. And apparently in the room, you can like feel like you're in the room with the person. And, and when you like you, you throw the chips in, you can see your hand move and you can like light your friend's cigar. And it's pretty wow, wild wow. what he was describing. So, <laughs> I may have to but, look into that. That's coming next. Yeah, yeah. The other thing you mentioned was the library as well. Are, are you a voracious reader? Yeah, if I were to show you this room, more than half of the wall in this room is covered with shelves and books. And yeah. I've been throwing them away or recycling <laughs> them or whatever now for months. Yeah. Okay, that was one of really? the jobs. And the reason is because my floor is about an inch or so lower than it was before. So I had to have somebody mm. come in and tell me what was wow. going on. And he said, get rid of the desk and get rid of the books <laughs> or you're going to end well, up in the garage. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I mostly read journals and magazines now. It's not okay. so much the the books. And I don't have rec a recreational book. I like historic novels, mm, but I haven't. Okay. I, I, it, there's just not time. I'm, I'm spending it all yeah. in biology. <laughs> Anything you've read recently that, that you liked? I read regularly The American Scientist. Okay. There's, I also read Scientific American. And yeah. the uh, the Sigma Xi one, I guess that's the American Scientist, their okay. publication, but yeah. really nice publication. Yeah. I had a subscription to Scientific American because every time I would travel, I would see it in the airport and I'm like, 
and I would say, oh, that, that'd be a great magazine to read on an airplane. Sure. I should just get the subscription. And then now that I have it, like I, I, I never look at it. So <laughs> I had to recently just pause it because it's just, it's a lot. There's no shortage of, of things to read. And, and I think at some point you just have to come to grips with the fact that you'll never be able to read everything that there is to read uh, Indeed. And, and just be, and be okay with state. that. <laughs> I got them for my kids. They really like them, okay. and it appears that yeah. they read them based on the discussion topics we have. So, yeah. Okay. So, when did this interest in um, biology, agriculture—you know, this everything—that started to lead to where you're where you're currently at in Aerofarms? Do you remember when that interest first started for you? Yeah, I do. I worked for Cor Cornell. I was the associate director for Cor Cornell Cooperative Extension. And okay. in that role, I supervised the agricultural extension educators throughout the state of New York. And so I traveled around a lot. I got to see a lot of the offices and, and I had a lot of time in the car to think. <laughs> so, but what kind of triggered it was to see on the top of the, in New York City, on top of the police academy building, they had a hydroponic system. I can't tell you mm. why it was there or whatever, okay, but yeah. they must have offered the space or something. Yeah. And I was just intrigued because in my background was a lot of dairy science, dairy equipment, you know, plumbing and moving fluids around and doing all that kind of stuff was it was very familiar to me. So now I see it growing plants. And although, you know, I PhD in dairy science, I'm a long ways away. I mean, cows eat, eat plants, right? But I didn't know yeah, much yeah, yeah. about plants at all. So I had a lot of learning to do. So I spent, I spent time learning about that. Also driving along the interstate, noticed all these vacant buildings. And I wondered, okay, why should pigeons be paying the rent? Why couldn't I, you know, <laughs> be growing plants? And yeah. there's some good reasons why it didn't end up that way. But those kind of thoughts all kind of coalesced into, okay, I got to know more about this. What were you finding in those early days about the industry? Because it's, I think people are, are getting more and more awareness about vertical farms, but Aerofarms itself has been around, I think, most close to 12 years now. And, and there's, there have been other companies that have come and gone. And so what were you seeing that was intriguing you and pulling you in, in further into the industry? Yeah. So in 2003, federal funding ended my role at Cornell. And okay. so I had all the time in the world. I also had a, re a retirement fund, etc. All, all those kind of things. And I ran into, via youth soccer, I ran into an engineer. And so I hired him and started actually exploring the, you know, doing it, actually creating it. And we, there, I'm not sure I can give you a, I mean, this is a long time ago. This is 2003. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. we started playing around with different ways to grow. And it's really helpful to know nothing, okay? Because then you try, you can try anything and you don't have much fear about what's going to happen. So the end of, of oh, I don't know, maybe about a year or so, we had a concept for the equipment. We had cloth as our media 
We okay. patented or applied for the patents during that period of time for growing in cloth. It was a pretty exciting time. And in Marathon, New York, which is about halfway between Ithaca and Binghamton, I rented the basement of an old canoe factory. <laughs> and actually, it's Grumman canoes that were of the aluminum ones that were made there. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so we would find aluminum rivets almost anytime, anywhere. But that was a great place, inexpensive rent, reasonably high ceilings. It allowed us then to fabricate some machines. So that became the pilot facility. So that started in 2004. And uh, there were three machines, two high, 100 feet long, five feet wide, and we'd sprinkle seeds on, mm. on the cloth and pull the cloth down the 100 feet and uh, harvest it. I harvested with a hedge trimmer, <laughs> package it in Ziploc baggies, and then started working on developing customers. And people were really excited about it yeah. because it tasted so much better. And also, it lasted mm. longer. So people would find it in the back of their refrigerator drawer, right? And they'd take it out and they'd eat it. And then they'd look at the date that was on it. And it was like three, sometimes four weeks old saying, how can that possibly be? Wow. So yeah, <laughs> it was a good time. And this, is, so this, and this is the work you were doing with Travis Martin yes. at Great Veggies? Yes. And lucky for me, yeah. Travis was a very methodical, very disciplined note taker. He was the right engineer at the time, because <laughs> there's lots of different kinds of engineers. But yeah, he, he was fantastic. And it looks like you were doing that for about four years. And, and then can you tell the story of how, you know, how that wrapped up and then how that started to, and, and how you moved into the, your work with Aerofarms? Sure. So that lasted pretty much until my retirement was gone. And I, although I was selling and I was selling all that I grew, it wasn't enough to, to pay the bills totally and for both the business and at home. And so I went looking for money and mm -hmm. uh, I, was, I was unsuccessful at doing that. People said this will never work. How can plants grow in cloth? I would say, come see it, etc. But there yeah. was just there wasn't yeah. enough credibility. And as you were alluding to before, there was really no one doing much of it, especially aeroponically. So this was new and yeah. growing without the sunshine. They would say the sunshine is free. So I'd write an I wrote an article about the sunshine isn't free. Okay. But none of that yeah. worked real well. So that's when I went to Syracuse University, as we were speaking before. So I had this <laughs> hiatus of a year and a half to two years in which I just did other things in order to pay the bills, close down the factory, did all of all that kind of stuff, took all the machines apart. That was a really that was second saddest to letting the couple of people who helped me do mm. that, letting them go. Uh, there's nothing sadder than having to say goodbye to, to uh, really good people. So I had a, I had a question on that. Like, what what do you think? And obviously, sometimes hindsight is twenty twenty. So, what would you say was one of your, uh, the biggest lessons you learned from running Great Veggies uh, in in retrospect? 
There are two things that I think are extremely important lessons, and I share them freely. <laughs> um, the first one is serendipity, if you're ready for it, will really help you out. So serendipity got me mm. Travis Martin, serendipity got me cloth that worked, serendipity, you know, there was just a lot of things that fell in place that now I look back and say there was absolutely no reason for that to, you know, I mean, how, how could I be that lucky? So serendipity is important. Yeah. The other one is curiosity. If you're curious, and a little mm. bit of it is you have to be persistently curious, curiosity can really take you a long way. So if you want to start a new business, stay curious, be ready for serendipity. I'm sure there's more lessons, all right? But those two, those two are very important. And the other thing you mentioned is the article you wrote about uh, Sunshine is not free, and, and maybe after the fact we can get a, a link to it. But can you recap what the premise of that was? Sure. People who have greenhouses, okay, the climate shifts all yeah. over the place. They're not fully protected from the climate. So they have to put in modifications. So they put in furnaces, they put in big fans to mm. cool it off, that kind of, so they have an, an additional equipment cost that the sun is really imposing, additional heat, the rest of the weather that comes. And then guess what? The lights go off when you don't, you know, they come on, they go off, they come partially, they come, you know, it's, if you look at a graph of that, it doesn't, it, so, so what are people doing now? They're buying supplemental lighting for their mm. greenhouses to get the same DLI every single yeah. day. So I figure, shucks, if I'm going to make the CapEx investment and the OpEx, I might just as well give up on the sun because all those other things are just, they're not yeah. helpful. So sad day, you're packing up the the equipment, having to let the team go. And and as any founder, I'm sure can relate that it's, it's not a good feeling. So, but it, no. having founded a company, that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, doesn't go away. No. <laughs> And so like after a while, those feelings start to fade and you start to think about, well, what's next? And so can you talk a little bit about how that started to come together for Aeroforms? Yeah. So after that little hiatus of school and some other things that I, that I did to get through that span of time in which I couldn't raise the funds and uh, whatever, it, while I was at Syracuse, a fellow persistently called and uh, he said, please don't hang up. He said, I am a venture capitalist. I think you're the future of agriculture. Mm. That was like the first wow. first part of the conversation. <laughs> so he had my attention 100%. <laughs> had you, had, you had experience we, working with uh, VCs at that point? A, a lot of them? or No, no never before. Okay. No. And actually, he was probably right to tell me not to hang up. But remember, I'm about curiosity and serendipity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I yeah, probably well, wasn't true, going yeah. to anyway. <laughs> but no. And But they had sort of this not so good image, right? They were sort of like the ones that come in and steal your business. Mm, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But this guy was this guy was not that way at all. It was David Anthony was one of the nicest, wonderful. He, he was just a wonderful person. Yeah. And did you feel like that was a good partnership and the right person to build 
what you had you because I imagine there was so many so many lessons that you learned, technologies that you tried, you know the the aeroponics that were working. So you got to test and iterate a lot when you know in the previous work you were doing at Great Veggies. So were you ready to really now put all those lessons to use and try something new and, and excited about the possibilities of what you could create? Yeah, I think we connected at the right time. His specification for me is if he was going to fund me, I would have to sell the equipment. And I was not afraid of taking that on mm. because when I worked in the dairy equipment industry, I had a number of roles, but I became very familiar with dealerships, regional sales management, all the marketing, sales, engineering, all of that, because I was a product manager and had a product line. So you kind of have to touch all the, all the pieces. So I was not afraid of taking on that role. So we set things up to do mm -hmm. that. I went back into the marathon facility, but this time without those other machines. Now I had to come up with machines and people, hire people to fabricate machines. And the idea then, I think this was pretty cool, the idea was to build 10-foot sections of the machine, mm -hmm. lease them to prospects, teach them to use that machine to grow leafy greens, and that would give them product to show to investors. It would teach them how to operate things and make plants grow. And so they would come away after I think we allowed them two months. Two months was the limit of the lease. And then the machine had to go to somebody else, okay, the next stop. But in that two months, they were pretty well equipped to buy a whole farm from mm -hmm. us and all that. Uh, the only difficulty was is, as my board at that time said, Ed, you made it too easy for them. Because most of them said, Ed, we're not going to buy this from you. This is too easy. We're going to build our own mm. and we're going to use your methods and your SOPs and all the rest of that. And that was for me, especially in one case, was just, wow, how can you do that? It's like you get the rug. The people talk about the rug being pulled out from underneath yeah. you. You know, I think I split my head when I hit the floor. I don't, it was bad. Yeah. So after a few of those cases, the, the board advised me to go find the rest of the C team because the other issue that we had was who keeps the book? <laughs> Ed does. Who does the management? Ed does. Yeah. Who's, you know, everything they asked for the most part, Ed had yeah. to raise his hand and they said, capital does not like to invest in something that only has one guy who's, you know, if it gets run over by a truck tomorrow, yeah. the company's pretty much dead in the water, except for I had all those disciples out there. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The, the idea of a single point of failure, right? Yeah. Yes. So they indicated that I should find some additional C team members. Fortunately for me, again, a little serendipity, one of the prospects I had asked the best questions. Mm. And when you've been selling for a long time, you kind of get a feel for what's going on. Even if you haven't met somebody, you could get a feel over the phone for, for kind of what's going yeah. on. And they were definitely the best, best questions, kept doing follow-up, et cetera. And so the, I think there were three of them at that time, the 
leader of the group, which is David Rosenberg, the current CEO, called me up and invited me down. And the conversation very quickly went to, where are you at? What are you looking for, et cetera? And we decided to merge. And so that's what became Just Greens, which used the Aero Farms. Aero Farms was a, was a registered trademark mm. previously. Mm-hmm. So, but and it it has stayed, it has made it in the test of time, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's it's still here and it's well known. So that was a happy stance. So I got my C team, and they've done. I mean, David's done amazing yeah. in raising funds. Mark getting us known and getting lots and lots of awards. So it was the right pick. What were some of the challenges? in those early days as you were building out the C team and having a need to very quickly scale up and not only the C team, but also the supporting infrastructure and the supporting other team members that you would need to really fulfill at the scale that you were looking for. Yeah. So when we put the C team together, I obviously do the technology. So I became the CTO, the chief technology officer. And David, the chief executive officer, and Mark, the chief marketing officer. So the three of us, that was pretty good coverage for a company. I mean, we have a lot more people on the C team now, but that was good basic coverage for the things that we needed to do at the time. So I pretty much worked on improvements, supporting when we went to meet with uh, cap uh, funders, I supported the science and the and the technology aspect of things and David David just managed and executed on all of that. And so the challenges I didn't really see the challenges. I mean it just it all just seemed to happen yeah. and some of it people will will tell you it wasn't made up. I mean it, it was it, it wasn't as orchestrated as you might think. The the concept has sold itself, I guess is another way to think about it. And some of the work in your role as CTO was working on automating the prototypes for harvesting, cleaning, and improving just the methods in which, in which you did the work within the, the buildings. Did you feel that because you had a lot of these other management-type tasks off your plate that you you sort of had the now the headspace to get your thinking cap back on and solve some of these challenges <laughs> so it's that's a bit of a loaded question <laughs> in the following way okay it's really hard when you've been that one person who has all the answers and whatever you say is what happens yeah. okay it's hard to begin to share that right so i had to keep telling myself David's the CEO, he's responsible for this, Mark is is doing this, and I need to do what you're saying. I needed to focus on improving the equipment, improving the processes, writing the SOPs, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of populating the the growing processes, the harvesting processes, the the safety uh protocols, all that kind of thing. So that was, I, I didn't, after a while, after you write 100 SOPs, okay, <laughs> you're, you're in it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it, that's actually something that's near and dear to my heart. And for the listener, an SOP is a standard operating procedure. And it's something, there's a book by Sam Carpenter 
work the system. He, and that's that's where I learned the concept. Mm-hmm. Did you learn that in at, at Cornell or where did you pick up that, that the importance of writing standard operation procedures, which ensures really that repeatable processes get done the same way every single time? Right. Yes. And because the whole idea here is to do something consistently yeah. so that the customer gets the same product over yeah. and over and over again, no matter what time of the year. And by the way, that's harder to do under the sun. But so I'm not sure exactly how I learned how to do SOPs. It kind of comes with doing a lot of writing anyway. Mm. So when I was a product manager, I had to write a lot of things. I don't remember many of them being SOP-ish, but you have to write a lot of stuff. So I think just writing, and it seems natural to, like you're saying, to control things properly, you need to have written instructions. I think it's something that entrepreneurs don't think about a lot. And sometimes when they're solopreneurs, they think, well, why am I writing it down if I'm the only one doing it? <laughs> but if you ever have visions of like growing your team, you, you know, you're going to be thankful that you, you did put in that work. And, and it's really a test the moment you hand over an SOP to someone to do for the first time. And then you just sit back and see, you know, did it work and how much of it got done, you know, to the specifications. And I have a couple of um, VAs in the Philippines. And I always say that if they get something wrong, it's my fault, not theirs, because I obviously didn't make the instructions clear enough. So I, I think that's, that's helpful to know. Yeah. And when it's written down, you can edit it. Yeah. You can, it's, it becomes a more dynamic thing. Yeah. Whereas if it's just in your head and you're telling it, it's dynamic every time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, yeah. <laughs> As you transitioned in 2013 from the technology to more of the science, what were some of the newer, the new set of challenges that you were tackling as chief science officer? Okay, so my PhD is in dairy science, mm-hmm. so I couldn't call up. I mean, a lot of the people that work for me had PhDs in, you know, biology or PhDs in horticulture yeah, or PhDs yeah, yeah, yeah. in things that were much more relevant. Okay, so. That was a bit of, I had to learn it, okay? And I, I like books. We yeah. talked about that. Um, so I have one section of the bookcase, and I read most of those texts, became familiar with, first of all, who are the people in academia who are doing most of the work? And that's been a very important addition to things. Mm. So CTO doesn't necessarily think about that, but a CSO does. Okay. I want to know all the people in the United States or uh, internationally who are working in this area, doing research in this area. I guess, so the biggest challenge really was to truly become the science part of it as opposed to the technology part of it. Although one would think they'd be integrated and should be integrated, yeah. but they're different. It's, it's a different mindset. So now I happily bathe myself in papers and journal articles and whatever else. It's a good thing you like reading. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit for, for the listener who may not understand the specific difference of aeroponics and the technology versus traditional, you know, the plants sitting on top of the water, technology, hydroponics, and, you know, explain a little bit of the pros and cons? Sure. So hydroponics is is work with water, hydro and, and ponics, and that kind of boxes things in. So as opposed to growing in soil, you now move to soilless culture. 
And I think of it as being broken up into three different parts. So hydroponics includes aeroponics, in which the roots are sprayed. Mm -hmm. There's, it also includes ebb and flow. People, there's other names for it, but that's really where you flush some water down. Most of the ones you see now are tubing, yeah. and that wets the roots. And then you can't do that constantly to the reason for that in a moment. And then there's another kind in which you float rafts on ponds of water. So in all cases, if you don't have sufficient oxygen with the water, the plants will die. Mm. And so for the deep water ones, you've got to oxygenate that water and keep that oxygen level at a, at a certain amount or a certain concentration. In the ebb and flow, you have to determine how much time you're going to leave the roots without being bathed in water, and then how much water do you have to run by in order to get them wet enough to, to make it through that period of time when there's no water there. But with aeroponics, you're spraying, and you're getting the optimal amount of air all the time, and the little and droplets onto things. And that was how it was explained to me. That's the Cadillac. And I said, that's the one I want. <laughs> so that's and how I ended up with aeroponics and how I think about the, the various divisions. Do you remember when you first heard about aeroponics? Hmm. Good question. Probably was in that 2003, 2004 timeframe. Okay. And what I'm curious how improvements happen with all these types of technologies. You know, there's the improvements now with LED lighting and efficiency. I'm wondering what you've seen either as CTO or even CSO or just just watching the industry. How have you seen specifically re related to aeroponics, the industry evolve? Yeah. The biggest evolution for me was in lighting and the biggest ahas came from lighting. Mm. Most of the rest of the mechanism along those three lines of, let's say, hydroponics was fairly well developed. People of hydroponics has really been around since Babylonian times is sort of the way they talk about yeah, yeah. it. Okay, not maybe as industrial as we're currently doing it. The So in lighting, though, people didn't, I don't think people thought about what the spectrum had as an influence on plants mm. or the intensity, what impact did it have on plants? And so if you look at the sun, the sun gives us a different light in the morning, different light at night. This is another one of those reasons why the sun is so uncooperative. And so you, if you understand what the spectral needs of the plant are to give you the chemistry that you want, then you can manipulate uh, the plants to become little factories of stuff that's valuable. Mm. If you understand the intensity of that lighting, you can avoid some of the anomalies that people run into when they have a hydroponic system. So those two things, and that was another learning curve for me. I mean, that's even foreign to, you know, people with PhD in horticulture yeah. don't really spend, I'm sure they do now, but don't spend a lot of time in the, in the lighting aspect of stuff. But, and we have not learned all of it yet. It'll be another several decades before we have that 
aspect of things sorted out. Interesting. One of the things that Aeroforms talks about a lot is the is the focus on taste, and I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit of you know why obviously that's important for anyone growing produce, but you know what Aeroforms' perspective is and, and and why that's important. Sure, taste is almost everything. It's the reason the customer comes back. If you can impress a person's palate, they'll they'll keep coming to find you. And that's difficult to do if you don't understand what promotes that great taste. So there's, I think of it as the organoleptic properties of the plant. So it's the visual, it's the sound, and the sound is the crunch. So we like our veggies to be crunchy. We We don't want them to be (laughs) flabby. So especially in leafy greens, so that's the sound part of it. And then there's the taste, the chemistry that goes along with it. And a part of that is also the smell uh, Mm. of it. So all the organoleptic properties are important. They can all be manipulated and they all are pretty much chemistry or plant chemistry oriented. So if you play around with a plant give it what it needs or what you want to give it to end up with a certain property of it, then you can create something that tastes great Mm. and people will keep coming back. The other part is, is if you understand what causes arugula to be peppery, then you can make it really peppery Mm. so that some people gag on it. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can make it medium peppery or maybe not so peppery. So you can begin to govern things and give people sort of the the flavor and taste that they want. That's definitely a uh, 10 cent word, organoleptic. I'm going to try to (laughs) pepper that into my conversations. now. (laughs) And it's important because I think at the end of the day, when it arrives on people's plates, they want to have a, a good experience with it. And all those senses need to be firing because that's, it, it almost creates a, a memory for you. Like I had someone ask me one time, what, what's your earliest smell that you remember like ever, you know, and then I had to, I had to think about like what it was. And it was, I think Play-Doh came to mind, I think for some reason, because, <laughs> but if you think about it, there's certain smells that will immediately transport you to like your childhood and it's, it's there's, there's no you know way around it because and, and i think there's that sensory connection that we've always had from the moment we you know we're born with, with with food and i think it's important that you talk about that as as important in in the work you guys are doing yeah and mark the cmo that i was speaking about before he's very knowledgeable about all of that and obviously let's say supporting and encouraging the consumer's view of that. Mm -hmm. Why do you need better tasting? You know, just so people, so that you have words to resonate with all of it. So someday maybe we'll have a sommelier of of leafy (laughs) greens. My high bar back probably better than 10 years ago for the company was to have people come into the restaurant and when it comes time to order your salad, you order it by specifying the greens that you want, mm. not the salad dressing. Yeah. And you don't order salad dressing. <laughs> 
Yeah, any 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 food connoisseur or um, salad connoisseur will tell you that that that's just how you mask and completely destroy <laughs> the actual flavor when you're trying to hide the fact that it's not quality leafy greens. Yeah, it has to be yeah. that they're covering something yeah. up, right? <laughs> because if you have good tasting leafy greens and a variety of them, it's incredible, the whole taste aspect of it, yeah. I wanted to uh, go back a little bit, and um, one of the things that was important for you was the, the work you did. In, you worked with schools in Newark, New Jersey. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about that and, and why that, that initiative was important for you? Sure. So I had some other prospects besides David and Mark, and these were fellows who, during the economic downturn, ended up leaving Wall Street. And they and and it was pretty amazing at that time how many people were running around with money looking for a place to put it. Yeah. <laughs> and so they came to me and they wanted to do something in the school that would give children a better sense of agriculture, a little bit better sense of food. And as it turns out, at that time, it was called St. Philip's Academy on Central Avenue in, in Newark. And their focus was really healthy children. So they spent a lot of time in almost every subject had something about food and diet and the rest of it in it. And um, so they wanted to rent a unit to put in the school to accomplish this. And so we went down and installed it. We had to take an elevator to the fourth floor that brought back some design considerations <laughs> in terms of, of building something that we could pull that off. But we did. We built it in the in the science room on the on the fourth floor. And the science room also had a kitchen, a lot like a teaching kitchen, and that that all worked out really well. And I was. You know, I, I thought this was great. Okay. Again, I liked kids. I thought this was very appropriate. And I liked the lessons that could be learned. The actual unit that we put in back in 2009 or 10, okay, is still there. So it's, it's, it's a decade old. And the students are still operating it and, and growing leafy greens that That's go great. into their salad bar. Now, it's now moved down into the cafeteria because they thought everybody in the school ought to have a, a view of this. And so the harvest, the students run it and and harvesting that what they harvest uh, goes into the salad bar. So there's only about 30 feet difference, okay, between or distance between the farm, if you will, and the salad bar. So I have the closest farm to to a salad bar as anywhere in the world. <laughs> now other people are doing that same kind of thing. I've talked to people who have growing units inside of a restaurant yeah, and they say yeah. that's a real great attraction to have. But having it in the school is cool. They've done some really kind of off the wall. See, they they don't know a whole lot about plants either, mm -hmm. just yeah. like, like I did. So they're free to explore whatever they want. So some of their experiments have been very interesting. And, and what I like, like about that is this education that, that I think is going to be needed on a really large scale, because I think for so long, there's been a disconnect between people's understanding of where their food comes from. And that happens you know, both with vegetables and produce, but also obviously with with meat and and I think what's happened with the with the pandemic is an, an awareness of you know 
being having a presence in food deserts or ha- having close access, local access to fresh food. And in the conversations that I've been having on this show, I think it's it's clear that everyone sees that as important and a growing need. And I think it's there's I've had a couple of conversations where they're saying you know, the more companies that are working on this problem, the better, because it's almost like an all hands on deck moment <laughs> with the need that we're having. And I'm, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are, uh, because I know there's some work that uh, Aerofarms has done, you've partnered in Jersey City. I think you're, you're doing some work addressing specifically food, food deserts and access to food. Yeah, so Aerofarms is definitely interested in doing that. It has a lot of value, even direct value to the company in, in terms of how people view our company. And so it has value there. I think that it's important to restore something. I think it's well accepted that around fourth grade, but parents and teachers are pretty well beat curiosity out of the students. So, and when I was at Syracuse doing that, I did some teaching and some experimentation with students. And I would ask them, so what did you see on the way to school? And they had no answer. I said, you didn't see leaves changing color. You didn't see squirrels picking up nuts and chipmunks and what you saw no wildlife, even though most of them walked <laughs> to school. Okay. Yeah. So curiosity is, I think, is an opportunity here. You're given something and you can voice your, your curiosity, you know, will wooden blocks stop the algae from growing in the, in the machine? Who knows? Yeah. Okay. Turns out it didn't do too bad. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you don't necessarily have to have successes because you can learn as much from a failure as, mm. as you can from a, a success. So yes. PAX, uh, Phillips Academy Charter School, which is the name now, has done a wonderful job at, you know, instilling curiosity, instilling the idea that you need to take care of yourself in providing opportunities to learn about nature and growing and and all all that type of things. And I, I agree. I'm not sure you need to know it in as much detail as perhaps I do, yeah. but you shouldn't think that your food comes from those double doors at the back of the supermarket. That's true, yeah. <laughs> and you should be able to say, oh my, when the whole Midwest is flooded, what's happening to the plants? And what does that mean? And so if you become a commodity trader, you know, you're going to be in shock. (laughs) If you're concerned about uh, the environment and what's changing in it, there's some signals that are built into that. And, And I find that a lot of young people are interested in this thing we call climate change. One of the other initiatives that Aeroforms is partnering on is the Lettuce Project. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? The lettuce project? Yeah, I think it's the. Um, I saw that it was a the, the foundation for food and agriculture research had provided a grant. Oh yes, okay, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah. So with Far, we have done a number of things, and the first one was really exciting. It was to match up what the well, how do you grow the plants? Yeah. What environment do you put them in? What spectral properties are present in that as an important part of it? So how do we grow the plants? What environment do we put them in? And then 
what chemistry is then promoted within the plant? So how does it change what chemicals the plant has? Mm. And then how do those chemicals translate into excuse me, um, what people like? So the taste comes back. So now you match up. Here's the recipe to grow your radishes. Here's the recipe of chemicals that that creates. And here's the recipe of those chemicals that taste good or taste bad. So get rid of the bad, keep the good. And and that we're finishing it up. COVID has not been good to sort of academic exercises, but yeah, yeah. So exciting project. A lot of learning shows sort of what the future of food could be you can really begin to parse out all those pieces that you and I have been talking about. A couple of questions as, as we wrap up. Uh, speaking of the future, when, when you think about where things are going to be and, and think about the projects that you're working on right now, what has you most excited for, for what this could look like, you know, five to 10 years from now? Little plant factories. <laughs> Figuring out how to make a plant do those kind of things that we want it to do. Hmm. because in most cases it can do it better if we do our job right than other, let's say, more synthetic ways. And so that resonates also better with people. If that particular chemical that we're coming up with is is naturally grown, I'm sure there'll be somebody who will say that's not natural. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But I think plants as, as little tiny factories is like that'll drive a lot of stuff. And is. I get the sense from the way you describe it, there's, it's almost like it's, a, it's, it's sort of like undiscovered territory. You know, when people talk about space exploration and, and sea exploration and how there's so much we don't know about our planet, it seems like there's so much we don't know about how plants grow and, and things we can do to, to optimize them for our benefit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's interesting and fascinating. What's a a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? (laughs) Do I know enough to go into that future? So, Mm. you know, all of us have, you can't count on what you learned in high school to get you through the next 60 (laughs) years of employment. (laughs) It's not going to happen. (laughs) So, and... I'm pretty good at learning new things. If you look at my career path, okay, I've, yeah. I've switched it up a bunch of times. So, but it still worries me. It's getting, it's much more technical. Yeah. You know, the genetics, the phenotypic aspect of things, people are using a whole language I don't understand. And that's the first thing when you, when you want to learn about a new science, you got to learn all the vocabulary mm. that goes along with it, or you can't yeah. read the papers, you can't understand the, the philosophies or the, and, and you can't read the SOPs. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so it's, yeah, I see that as the tough question. Am I up to that? Yeah. And maybe do I want to do it? That's true. <laughs> At a certain yeah, point, a, you may not want to keep going. As with every industry, there'll always be a fresh crop of new recruits and new people who are learning these new technologies, you know, in their teens and are very comfortable in the same way with, you know, startups. There's people who learn a program when they're young and they're just whizzes at this. And, and there's some people that just gravitate towards this, this science and, and, and know it like the back of their hand. And, and I think 
you know, a lot of the companies I speak to, when they talk about hiring, they talk about data scientists and artificial intelligence and <laughs> all these things that you, you probably weren't thinking about when you were, you know, starting your first company. Yeah. And Aerofarms has been exceedingly lucky because we have thousands and thousands of applications for every role that we push out. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that is because we're using those sciences that you talked about, we're using them on a daily basis for the good, for the betterment of mankind. So they buy into the mission. They mm. like the, the fact that we're using technology and that we're yeah. doing it at a high level. So they're, they're going to be challenged. I think all of us like to go to work if we're, if we're going to be challenged, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One last question um, based on uh, some of the research I was doing, and you've probably heard this before, but you were mentioned in an article in The New Yorker, and the author Ian Fraser talked, uh, he likened your invention to the Wright brothers. I don't know if you remember, <laughs> remember that and what you thought of that when you read that. Yeah, I, I like to be more modest than, <laughs> than that. I think a lot of us have some difficulty. You know, yeah, Ian Fraser was fun. Uh, if you ever get a chance to be interviewed by him, he's he's fun. Okay, yeah. he's a great guy. One of the things that's interesting about him, he's also an inventor, okay. and he invented something to pick the plastic bags out of trees in oh, wow. New York City. Wow. <laughs> okay, and the, so it's it. You almost immediately know if you're talking to a character, right? Yeah, yeah. And Ian's one of those, yeah. That's interesting. Well, Ed, I want to thank you for taking the time. I've really enjoyed learning a little bit about your journey and your story, and I can tell that um, you, you really are an inventor and a creator at heart, and it, I, I can see the passion that you have for this industry and the ability to just continue to learn, and I really am excited about what I've seen Aeroforms is doing. And I want to thank you for your contribution to just helping us have more access to fresh food. So I think the more companies we have like Aerofarms, I think the, the world will be a better place for it. So I, I thank you for your time. Well, thank you for letting me share. Yeah. I enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you. And uh, good luck in your next poker game. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And if you come up with an online version of that, yes. please share. Okay. <laughs> One that's not complicated. You yeah. know, guys mostly in their 70s and 80s yeah. can do it, etc. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks again to Ed for sharing his fascinating story. So much life experience that led him to where he is now. I really enjoyed that conversation. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series is creating sustainable growing environments by combining smart design, innovative technology, and dynamic partnerships. Learn more at seriesgs.com. That's C-E-R-E-S-G-S dot -E com. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read them out on future episodes. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.